Well, welcome to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. Having a little trouble with the camera again, apparently. Uh, just to uh, let Richie know, my camera is in fact turned on on this end. I don't know uh, uh, what exactly is the issue, but uh, I do have a face for radio, so I think it's actually working out for those of you uh, watching on Rumble. But um, <clears throat> today, of course, is the 104th anniversary of the Miracle of the Sun at uh, Fatima, the final episode apparition of Fatima. So we're going to be talking about Fatima a little later in the program, and especially what needs to be done by you and I in regard to um, Our Lady's message and the, the call of Our Lady, which according to St. Paul, John Paul II is more relevant and more urgent than when Our Lady first appeared. We're also going to be talking about opposition to the Catholic Church as one of the ways to recognize Catholicism as the true faith. All that, plus today is the feast of St. Edward the Confessor, one of my favorites, a patron saint of mine, and we're going to talk about him. But uh, first, this week began with the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, and the gospel from the 20th Sunday, Jesus heals the official's son, taken from John 4, verses 46 through 53. And our translation today, we're going to be reading from the New Catholic Bible. So at that time, Jesus went again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. At Capernaum, there was a royal official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and pleaded that he come and heal his son who was near death. Jesus said to him, unless you witness signs and wonders, you will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, Return home, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him, and he departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him, uh, saying that his child was going to live. He asked them at what time the boy had begun to recover, and they told him the fever left him yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon. Then the father realized that the exact hour at which Jesus, uh, that was the exact hour at which Jesus had assured him, Your son will live. And he and his entire household came to believe. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this account is traditionally viewed as a third version of the cure of the centurion's son from Matthew 8 or his servant, as Luke would have it in Luke 7. Uh, John's mentioning that he and his entire household came to believe also associates this ruler slash centurion with the centurion Cornelius from Acts chapter 10. Tradition also uh, identifies Cornelius as the centurion at the foot of the cross, the one who said, truly this man was the son of God, in Matthew 27 and Mark 15. Uh, also, the uh, geography is significant because for the most part, the northern regions of Samaria and Galilee accepted Jesus in faith, whereas the southern region of Judea, with the capital city of Jerusalem, is persistently antagonistic toward him. And so that <clears throat> tension between north and south is illustrated by the emphasis on Jesus withdrawing from Judea to Galilee, and elsewhere, of course, by the rather derogatory remarks about Galileans and Samaritans that are made by Jesus' opponents. And by the time that John got around to writing his gospel, which was near the end of the first century, he classifies Jesus' enemies simply as the Jews, which is to say the unbelieving leaders of Judea and Jerusalem, that southern region. So what do we learn from John's version of this episode? 
Uh, significantly, that God permitted the son of the ruler to fall sick so that he would seek assistance from Christ and thereby obtain faith and salvation. So this shows us, number one, that the, the conversion of sinners is one reason that uh, God permits evils and misfortunes. And that means even if, you know, if God allows bad weather or famine or sickness or war, the death of those we love and so on, that he desires nothing else than for us to turn away from our sins and back to him. That's what repent means, to turn back. And number two, that he also allows afflictions on the pious and the innocent or uh, allows them to be tormented by the wicked in order to try their patience and, and their love for him, to detach them from the world, to set them on guard against sin, to give them uh, the opportunity for great, gaining great merits. For St. Paul says, God makes all things work together for good for those who love him. Now, we can see this illustrated in you know, like the book of Job and Tobit and elsewhere in the Bible, and also how profitable these trials are from God were to them. Of course, we can't compare ourselves with these pious men of Scripture if we don't turn our trials to our own advantage through the virtue of patience. Uh, Number three, we also see how much good the example of the father of a family can accomplish. Once this this ruler uh, slash centurion, once he's received the faith, it says his whole household was converted and believed in Jesus Christ. Therefore, fathers and mothers of families, by their good example, uh, their piety, their zeal in prayer, um, the frequent reception of the holy sacraments, by their meekness and uh, moderation, their modesty, all these things can do immense good for their children and for the members of their household. That's, you know, traditionally uh, you would talk about the members of the household would be including servants and so forth, although that doesn't really apply to most of us, I expect. Um, But this is something to reflect on. Um, often, that if we don't take care of our own, especially those of our own house, and according to St. Paul, we've denied the faith. We're worse than an infidel. And of course, he's talking about, um, <clears throat> in a material sense, he says in First Timothy 5.8, whoever does not provide for relatives, especially those who are living with him, has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, if that's true in a material sense, how much more in a spiritual sense? Uh, and this is especially true, I think, in regard to the care of the sick. And this is one of the reasons that the 20th Sunday after Pentecost was a, it was a traditional subject for sermons to talk about the care of the sick. Um, and uh, it, I think it's relevant in our times, of course, during all the, the COVID business. Uh, many people taking care of the sick in their homes because the sick were denied treatment and they, <laughs> you know, through regular avenues during the lockdowns and whatnot. But uh, to console ourselves in times of sickness, let's consider that God has allowed the sickness for the good of our souls, that we uh, might thereby attain a knowledge of our sins, make satisfaction for them. Or, uh, as Father Goffin says in his commentary, if we suffer innocently, that we may uh, exercise ourselves in patience and charity and humility and, and such like virtues, and so increase our merits. In the word, uh, words of St. Augustine, he said, O Lord, burn here, here wound, only spare me in eternity. Right, so I'm, I'm willing to put up with whatever kind of suffering now, so long as I go to heaven. Now, <clears throat> what about those who have charge of the sick, those who are taking care of the sick? Uh, with the aging population, 
I know that many of us have become caregivers for our elderly parents and, uh, uh, and people have any number of uh, issues where they have sick people in the home. And so for those caregivers, you know, when you're taking care of somebody, the first thing you should think about is their soul, right? And, and call for if possible. And it was sometimes during the lockdown, it was, uh, not possible to do, but, um, and in other circumstances, you know, to, to call for somebody to bring the blessed sacrament to the home so that they can receive Jesus in Holy communion. And especially before a sick person is past the point of being able to receive or to being able to receive with devotion. And so parents and children and relatives and, and friends, if we really love the sick, we want to encourage them in their spiritual life and encourage them to receive Holy communion, um, in time. And at the beginning and during the progress of uh, an illness, we want to try and encourage the, the patient to resignation, to that childlike confidence in God that we are all called to, um, that uh, we should you know, present to them our good Savior, suffering and glorified as a pattern of, of consolation, right? So we want to pray with them and help strengthen them against depression, against you know, thoughts of despondence and, and the temptations of the devil. You know, get them to say the sign of the cross, sprinkle them with holy water, all these things. Pray for a happy death if it's a terminal illness. These things are, are every bit as important uh, as the care for the body. But of course, care for body is not to be neglected. The caregiver uh, of the sick should take them to the doctor, give them their medicines at the appointed times, keep everything clean, you know, uh, um, and also to, to help them to observe any dietary restrictions or, or, or other uh, restrictions that are placed on their behavior. You know, you don't want to give them their own will in those things if, if what they want would be hurtful to them. Okay, you don't want to don't want to let the grandma with the emphysema have that pack of cigarettes. So in general, we want to really we're just talking about re, uh, following the golden rule. We should do what we would uh, wish others would uh, do for us. And there's no greater work of charity than to attend to a sick person and particularly to assist them in the happy death. And uh, and that's no nonsense. It reminds me of a of a story. Uh, uh, that I heard uh, about a, a Baptist minister and a priest who lived in the same town used to talk about religion all the time. And um, as time went on, the minister actually began to believe in the truths of the Catholic religion, kind of one by one. And and he, he accepted really everything except this one truth. He couldn't get past uh, the idea of the real presence of the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. It was the one thing he couldn't uh, uh, accept. He said, if I could believe that, that I really and truly received God in communion, I'd be the happiest man in the world, but I just can't seem to do it. And so, you know, time passed and he became ill and his last illness. And when the priest came to see him, uh, he was actually unconscious and he prayed that he would regain his senses and, and his prayer was answered. And that dying minister smiled at him and he asked it to, to sit up and, and he probably would have gone on speaking, but he, he fixed his eyes at something on the foot of the bed and pointed and all the priest couldn't see anything. But he said, really present. If I'd known, I would have preached it to the whole world. And with that, he died. And there's a happy death. All right, going to come back with lots more right here on uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No-Nonsense Catholics. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. And today is the 104th anniversary of the Miracle of the Sun, the final apparition of Our Lady of Fatima. And Fatima, as I'm sure you know, was the 20th century visit of our Heavenly Mother Mary. Uh, between May 13th and October 13th of 1917. Mary came to the little village of Fatima, Portugal, which had remained faithful to the Catholic Church during persecutions by their own uh, secular government, and she brought with her a message of concern and a practical plan for world peace and the promise of heaven. So Our Lady of Fatima uh, promised that the whole world would be in peace and that many souls would go to heaven if her requests were listened to and obeyed, but that God would punish the world for its sins in our time by means of war, hunger, persecution of the church, etc., unless we listened and obeyed the commands of God. She said, if what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. The war, that is the first world war, is going to end. But if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out during the pontificate of Pius XI. And she said, if my requests are not granted, Russia will spread her errors, that is atheism, socialism, communism, throughout the world, raising up wars and persecutions against the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. She told us that the whole world, and the surviving part anyway, would be enslaved to these errors. And I think, you know, it's scary that we see those errors, you know, uh, so prevalent in our, even in our own society today. But she said, in, in order to prevent these chastisements from befalling us, it was necessary for uh, Catholics to make special reparation for sins committed against her Immaculate Heart. And that would include the public and solemn consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, by all the Catholic bishops of the world together with the Pope on the same day at the same hour. Uh, very specific kind of instructions there. Uh, but and despite uh, consecrations of the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary by Popes uh, Pius Twelfth and St. John Paul II, many Fatima experts agree that the consecration of Russia desired by Our Lady has not been accomplished. Now, our own Terry Barber and Dr. Ed Mazza can tell you more about that. I'm no expert. But, but the fact that World War II did in fact happen <laughs> and that the errors of atheism, socialism, and communism have in, in fact spread throughout the world <clears throat> with the concurrent persecution of the church seems to support that opinion. Uh, Sister Lucy herself said, since we did not heed this appeal of the message, we see that it has been fulfilled. Russia has invaded the world with her errors. And if we have not yet seen the complete fulfillment part of this prophecy, we are going to see it. Uh, we are going towards it a little by little with great strides. Now, however you may come down on the score of the uh, consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, it brings uh, an aspect of the Fatima message that is of, in my opinion, far greater importance to you and me than the consecration of Russia. And that's Our Lady's specific requests for the faithful. John Paul II said the message of Fatima is addressed to every human being, so not just Catholics. And he says it's more relevant and urgent than when Our Lady first appeared. And that was back in, I think, 1991. So while you and I can't do much about the consecration of Russia besides pray, we can do the things Our Lady asked of us. And she made uh, 
well, I think five requests that can be boiled down into, into three that follow the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So the first is uh, the request for prayer. Um, and then she calls for us to, and particularly the Holy Rosary and the Brown Scapular, she calls us to amend our lives, to make reparation for the sins and outrages you know, perpetrated against God's grace and the blasphemies against the hearts of Jesus and Mary. And then the third request is for the consecration of the Immaculate Heart, not just to Russia, but the consecration of all the faithful on a personal basis. So let's take a look at these one by one here, beginning with prayer. Each time the Blessed Virgin appeared to the children of Fatima, she repeated her request that we pray five decades of the rosary every day. In her words, pray, pray a great deal and make sacrifices for sinners. For many souls go to hell because they have no one to pray and make sacrifices for them. In the final vision on October 13th, 1917, precisely 104 years ago today, Our Lady silently held up the brown scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, just held it. And it was a sign that she wanted us to practice this great devotion as well as uh, to pray the rosary. Uh, Sister Lucy said, the scapular and the rosary are inseparable. So number one, emerging from the virtue of faith, prayer is the firm foundation for peace in heaven's plan. Number two is reparation. At Fatima, pardon me, Our Lady told the little seers that our Lord is much offended by sin. So we have to we have to stop offending his sacred hearts already so much offended. She declared, quote, people must amend their lives and ask pardon for their sins. And so she told the, the children that she would return and ask for a new devotion, uh, a devotion of reparation to save souls. And true to her word, she appeared to uh, Lucy on the 10th of December in 1925. So this is the this was after the last you know the big public appearance, uh, and uh, she appeared with the child Jesus, and Lucy was now sister Lucy. She was a, a convent and a uh, a nun in a convent in Spain, and Our Lady showed her a heart surrounded by thorns, and told Sister Lucy to announce to the world in her name that she that is Mary would assist at the moment of death all those who, on the first Saturday of five consecutive months. Go to confession, receive Holy Communion, recite five decades of the rosary, and spend 15 minutes meditating on the rosary mysteries with the intention of making reparation to her. Now, you know, this is actually more difficult than it seems, you know, uh, although people who are daily communicants, I, I would suspect all they need to do is add the rosary, the meditation, and the intention. But this, this great virtue arising from the virtue of hope the virtue of the five first Saturdays has united millions of Catholics, millions of Catholic hearts in reparation for sin and atonement for offenses against the hearts of Jesus and Mary. And if you haven't made the first five Saturdays, I recommend you do. And so does Our Lady. <laughs> so I'm in good company. Lastly, it's a consecration. And to consecrate means to make holy, means to, to dedicate something to God, to set it apart as sacred. And uh, in accordance with the Holy Gospel, the Mother of God asked each of us to consecrate our lives to her Immaculate Heart, to to let her Immaculate Heart become um, our gateway to her Son, 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And deriving, as it does, from the virtue of charity, the virtue of self-giving love, the act of consecration is, I, I think, the single most important part in Our Lady's plan. Now, there's the the um, method according, to, you know, the traditional method according to St. Louis uh, de Montfort. Um, a number of years ago, my wife and I did a, a consecration with the whole family using Father Gately's 33 Days to Morning Glory. That's just another method of consecrating um, yourself to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So that's it. Prayer, reparation, consecration equals peace in our lives and uh, peace in the world, ultimately, uh, or perhaps I should say, ultimately, peace in heaven. So a, a final word here. Even though Fatima has enjoyed official church approval since I oh got well, 1930, I guess, is when it was finally approved by the church. And, and millions of Catholics have gone there on pilgrimage, and there's been, you know, healings and miracles, besides the, the great public miracle of the miracle of the sun. Um, speaking of pilgrims, John Paul II went there twice uh, as Pope. And uh, despite the, the, the miracles, the signs, there's still much opposition to uh, devotion to Our Lady of Fatima, to, our, to the message of Our Lady of Fatima, even to the rosary. You know, in the early days, of course, it came in the form of open hostility. So like when you've got the, the three children of Fatima that were kidnapped and threatened with death um, back in 1917 to keep them to, from going to, the, you know, the COVID era and being there for Our Lady's apparition. Uh, back in 1922, the first chapel that was built there was bombed. Okay, so you have this, this uh, kind of obvious and, and open hostility. But then today, we see opposition to Our Lady of Fatima that comes in, in subtler forms. Um, and I think because the prophetic message goes against certain people's views, okay? It goes against uh, some people, even people in the church. It goes against their vested interests. You know, it, it is a message against socialism, for example. And we live in a time when I've heard uh, Catholic prelates, even even highly ranked ones, talking about socialists as though they were, you know, uh, better accomplishing the works of mercy than the Christians are. Uh, so, you know, the devil opposes the restoration of the church. And he knows that the triumph of the Immaculate Heart is going to bring an end to his empire of evil. And so the evil one and his human agents and, and a veritable army of, of well-meaning but terribly misguided Catholics, uh, you know, who serve them, that they, they carry on a campaign to obscure the message of Fatima and to cause enough confusion to keep the faithful from obeying Our Lady's requests. And I'll tell you right now, anytime you hear a Catholic praising socialists or socialism, Okay, put your hand on your wallet and understand that you're not going to have to look very far to find the devil's cloven hoof. Because, well, the warnings that Our Lady gave the world at Fatima are so stern and so terrible that I think a lot of people have given into the idea that, that her message is apocalyptic. But I, I disagree. I think that like the revelations that Our Lady gave to Mother Mariana in Quito, Ecuador, 400 years ago, when she appeared as Our Lady of Good Success, the message of Fatima is not about the end of the world. Our Lady of Good Success promised a marvelous restoration in the church. And as Our Lady of Fatima, she promises the triumph her, of her Immaculate Heart. You know, it's same lady, same message. At the heart of Fatima is the promise of peace, which the Blessed Virgin offers to all men and women of faith and goodwill. It's simple. 
it's universal. Her message is, is a heaven-sent opportunity for people everywhere to work for a real and lasting peace in our homes, in our churches, even in our nations. And that's no nonsense. You know, I've, I've often said that you know, the persecution of the church <clears throat> is a sign that things are going well, actually, because it's when the church is persecuted that, uh, you know, people look at her doctrines and her dogmas. It's, it's, you know, when they're challenged that people look at them, not when things are good. And we have the promise of our Lord himself, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That is not a promise that he made to the United States of America or to, uh, you know, some vague notion of family values or whatever, but to the Catholic Church uh, specifically. It may be smaller. It may be uh, harder. But uh, there's no better time for you and me to be a Catholic than right now, because now is the time that God wanted us to be. And that's no nonsense also. Hey, speaking of the persecution of the church, going to talk about that more later when we come back. St. Edward the Confessor and Mary England. Stick with us, and we'll be right back after these messages. Have you ever heard the expression Merry England or Merry Old England? I'm going to talk about that uh, just a minute. If you're just joining us, this is Matthew Arnold of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, listening to No Nonsense Catholic. The term Merry Old England, it was meant to represent a, a, a golden age, uh, a time in the past when things were as they should be, or at least uh, more like they should be. For um, J.R.R. Tolkien, for example, author of Lord of the Rings, Merry Old England is represented by the Shire. Right? This fictional land of the hobbits is based on rural England from before the Industrial Revolution spoiled their beautiful landscape with ugly factories belching out black smoke. Uh, for Englishmen in the 16th century, like St. Sir Thomas More and uh, arguably uh, Shakespeare, Merry England was Catholic England. So this is England before... Henry VIII burned down the monasteries and his daughter ushered in uh, an era of Protestantism and, and ruthless persecution. But even before that, Merry England was the time before the Norman Conquest, before the Battle of Hastings in 1066, when William the Conqueror came and made himself the first Norman King of England. That, uh, that pre-Battle of Hastings England of peace and plenty and good King Edward's laws, that was the England of St. King Edward the Confessor, whose feast we celebrate today. Edward was the son of Ethelred II and half-brother to Edmund Ironside, who was Ethelred's son by his first wife and uh, heir to the throne, and also uh, half-brother to Hardicanute, who was his half-brother by his mar mother's second marriage to Canute after Ethelred. So, um, yeah, it's quite the uh, the convoluted little uh, uh, succession there. But uh, due to concerns about the succession and court intrigue, as well as the ongoing uh, um, conflict with Danes, the, the Danish settlers who were the the uh, successors of, of the Viking you know, raiders of earlier generations, um, when he was only 10 years old, Edward was sent off to be brought up at the court of his uncle, the Duke of Normandy. And he spent 
the next 30 years of his life in exile. So Edward grew up, actually, um, you know, I think it was a, a, a freeing thing that he was that he was free from any royal ambition. He didn't have to worry about, you know, <laughs> uh, succeeding to the throne. And so his big delights uh, were assisting at mass and praying the hours and associating with with the religious. And at the same time, he did enjoy the pleasures of the chase and other recreations that were suited to his to his royal station. But then. Uh, as a, a big surprise in 1042 and due to various factors that are much too convoluted to go into at this point, but English throne was empty and Edward was actually proclaimed King by popular acclamation, uh, acclamation, I should say. Uh, and because of his gentle and saintly, uh, character and reputation, he was welcomed even by the Danish settlers who had, you know, the, the, the successors of the invaders who, who had settled in England. And his reign was was one of almost unbroken peace. About 20 years he reigned. And, and during that time, he undertook no wars, um, with the exception of, of actually repelling an, an inroad by the Welsh. And, and uh, he assisted Malcolm III against Macbeth. Yes, that Macbeth, right, the usurper of the Scottish throne. Uh, but other than that, I mean, he fought no foreign wars. He fought no wars of his own at all. And, and being devoid of any personal ambition, uh, his only aim was the welfare of the people. And so not only did he not levy any new taxes, he even remitted one. We're talking about the Danes. There was a tax uh, that was called the, the Danegeld, <clears throat> which had originally been instituted to, to raise money to pay tribute to the Vikings. You know, the Vikings would come and, uh, and uh, sack and, and uh, pillage all the little villages along the coast. And so they finally, you know, said, look, we'll make a deal with you. We'll pay you. It's like, it's like an extortion scheme. We'll pay you money. It's a protection racket. Uh, and, and if we give you this money, you won't burn our town. Ultimately, they were uh, encouraged to come and settle in England themselves. You know, stop coming here and taking stuff and just, you know, come on over. <clears throat> and, and that was the case uh, when Edward became king. And he was welcomed by the Danes as well. And he abolished the Dane guilt because he said, well, we don't need that tax any longer. And that's something to think about. When was the last time you heard of, uh, about a politician repealing a tax? You know, come to think of it, the federal income tax was levied to pay for the Civil War. I mean, do we still owe money on that? <laughs> anyway, Edward's generosity to the poor and uh, his generosity to, to religious causes is legendary. But it's important to note that he made uh, his own royal patrimony suffice for his charitable works. In other words, he didn't uh, impose taxes in order to make these contributions. But in other words, his acts of charity were real acts of charity because he used his own money. And the contentment that was caused by his policies were such that when later generation of Englishmen felt themselves oppressed, they repeatedly demanded a return to good St. Edward's laws. And that's the beginning, I think, of the idea of Mary England was the time of good St. Edward's laws. Now, a king needs a queen, but uh, during his 30 years of exile, Edward never dreamed that he would be king of England. And in his piety and his religious zeal, he undertook a vow of perpetual chastity. So when he gave in to the entreaties of the nobility that he would take a wife, he married the virtuous Editha, Editha, however you say that, uh, who was the um, niece of the Earl Godwin. Um, and, but 
only because she agreed to live with him as brother and sister. She was also very, very pious. And um, during his exile, he had actually made another religious vow as well. He had um, bound himself to go on pilgrimage to St. Peter's tomb in Rome. But now being he's the king of England, he can't leave the kingdom without injury to the people. And so he appealed to the Pope, and his vow was commuted into rebuilding St. Peter's Abbey at Westminster. And uh, the dedication of Westminster's Abbey actually took place just a week before his death. And he was the first of 16 English kings and queens to be buried there. Uh, although he's, his body's not there any longer. I'll tell you about that in a second. St. Edward was the first king of England to heal people by the laying on of hands, what became known as the royal touch. The, uh, the monarchs touched his subjects, regardless of social class, with the intent to cure them of various diseases and conditions, notably a, a disease, common disease called scrofula, which was known as the king's evil. And in later years, that ability to cure scrofula was claimed by various monarchs of England and France who were trying to demonstrate the legitimacy of their reign. See, look, I can do it like, like St. Edward did. And, and you can see here one of the inspirations for Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, that after that final battle, uh, Aragorn goes to the houses of healing and intends to the wounded. And an old woman remembers the prophecy, the hands of the king will be the hands of a healer. And that points back to good St. Edward. Uh, Edward the, was canonized a little less than a century after his death. He died in 1066, obviously just you know prior to the Battle of Hastings, which was the, um, you know, the, the fact that he did not leave a son was seized upon by uh, William the Conqueror, uh, who invaded England in 1066. But he was um, he was canonized in 1161, so something less than 100 years later, given the title Confessor, which is reserved for those saints whose very lives give witness to the faith of Jesus Christ. His body was found incorrupt, and it was uh, translated in 1163 by St. Thomas of Canterbury. Uh, in the presence of King Henry II, father of King Richard the Lionheart, the quintessential English king, and uh, his brother, King John, who's the quintessential English villain. Uh, St. Thomas of Canterbury, um, you know, like I say, he moved his body, and his feast is kept on the 13th of October. So today, as we celebrate the anniversary of the miracle of the sun at Fatima, as we pray for peace in our family and uh, in our, our families and in our world and in our church, uh, let's remember to ask the intercession of St. Edward the Confessor. St. Edward the Confessor, pray for us perhaps at the end of your rosary tonight, because in our days of so-called Catholic politicians, you know, shamelessly calling themselves devout, while at the same time they, they flaunt the teaching of Christ, even to the promotion of the, the wholesale murder of the unborn, and then dare to present themselves for Holy Communion or, or even make bold to take audience with the Pope in Rome. It's well to remember the days of merry old England, Catholic England, the England of good King Edward's laws. And that's no nonsense. Well, let's take a minute and pray right now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, you crowned St. Edward with the glory of eternity. May we venerate him on earth so that we may be able to reign with him in heaven. We ask this through your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. 
Amen. Saint Edward the Confessor, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, it's one of those things that you think about monarchy and uh, and republics and the way the world is today. And I've often talked about the restoration of Christendom and even the restoration of monarchy, that I think that Catholic monarchy is uh, a system of government that has been tried and found wildly successful. <laughs> Unfortunately, time and tide, you know, the things change, but things can change back again. You know, people say you can't turn back the clock, and that's true. We talked about tradition versus the past last week. But at the same time, uh, if you want progress, according to C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, true progress means that if you discover you're on the wrong road, you turn around and you make an about face and go in the other direction. <clears throat> and so the man who goes back first is, in fact, uh, the most progressive. But monarchy in general, as, as a monarchist, people uh, often, you know, say that that's idealistic and extreme. There's actually a bunch of Catholic prophecies regarding the coming of a great monarch in these latter days. I believe in that personally. I also know that, uh, I suspect at least that Tolkien uh, based his return of the king largely on that same idea. And so we're going to talk about um, that in, in coming weeks. But when we come back, uh, if you're looking for the true church, look for the one that the world hates. We'll talk about what I mean when we return. We're going to have lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Sure glad to have you along with us. Please stay with us, and we will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're talking about opposition to the message of Fatima, opposition to the church. Um, and right now, the Catholic Church uh, worldwide is, is suffering an international scourge of vandalism. Even here in the United States, you, you hear more and more about Catholic churches being vandalizing. It's increasing incidents of vandalization, most recently here on Columbus Day. And, um, <clears throat> you know, you have... I, I think that arises from this kind of pig ignorant prejudice. It comes from a false view of history um, regarding Columbus and Father Sarah and the Catholic missionaries who came to convert the Americas. I think they uh, take a dim view of uh, the conversion process and thinks that, you know, uh, we, people have been better left alone. Um, and don't have the kind of time to go into a, a substantive argument there. But the fact is, a lot of people hate the church. A lot of people hate the church for increasingly stupid reasons. Uh, but that is probably not so surprising, really. I mean, you consider the presentation of Jesus in the temple by Mary and Joseph. Luke 2.34 says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, a sign uh, in the old translation of, of contradiction. Our Lord himself said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, realizes that it hated me first. No servant is greater than his master. So consequently, it has been said that if you're looking for the true church, you should look for the one that the world hates, the, the, the church that the world calumniates and persecutes. And, and 
yet we live in a time <laughs> when it seems like our leadership is trying to change all that. Uh, and I can only hope that, uh, for example, at some point uh, during the current synod, which is a synod about synods, uh, that some courageous Catholic will stand up and say with G.K. Chesterton, we do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Because, you know, we the Catholic Church has a track record of moving the world. You understand that before Christ and his church came along, there were scholars, but there were no universities. And there were doctors, but there were no hospitals. And there were philanthropists, but but there were no charities. See, all of these things and, and a million more um, only came about because of the Catholic Church, because of Christ, because of Catholicism. You know, people often attack the Church on the basis that there are non-Catholics, even, even atheists and agnostics, who seem to, to live better lives than some Catholics do. Why so? Why is it that there are Catholic, atheists and agnostics that, that, that live better lives than Catholics? So the answer is because of Catholicism. And what do I mean by that? Well, simply this, that modern secular people in the Western world still live in societies that are permeated with Christian ideals and, and that they are profoundly influenced, consciously or not, and boy, the unconscious are growing in ranks, uh, they, they are influenced by the moral standards and codes of ethics that were inspired by the teachings of Christ and his church. You know, you look closer at their claims of moral superiority, and you'll find that, that whatever exists that actually commends them goes back to the standards of conduct instilled by the religion of Christ. And, and likewise, if it's true that there are Catholics whose lives are, are anything but exemplary, we need to remember a couple of things. First, that Christ chose men and not angels to take care of his church. Now, that might seem elementary, but if we keep it in mind, then maybe we won't have so much trouble understanding priests who don't live up to the demands of their vocation, for example. I think of the 12 apostles. With the exception of Matthew, you have a group of, of unlearned men, one of whom was a traitor, another a perjurer and a coward, Nine of the remainder were deserters who left Christ when he needed him most. Only one, only John remained faithful. The point is that it's grade A nonsense to judge the church by those who fail to live up to her demands. If you want to judge the church or any organization fairly, then you have to judge it by those who live in accordance with the rules of the organization. So, so yes, we've had bad Catholics. Yes, we have even had bad popes, and popes plural, popes who have been a scandal to the church. And it's easy to single out the fallen. It's easy to, to point fingers at the Catholic in name only. But you have to ask, what about the countless souls who gave themselves wholeheartedly to the faith? What about, about that, that, that army of witnesses that, that's impossible to count? Not just the, not just the saints that are canonized of which there are many, but all the, all the, the quiet ones, all the ones that, that, we, that we don't celebrate, that we don't even know about, who are at this minute enjoying the beatific vision, and at this minute are members of the church militant, fighting to, to preserve their faith to the end. See, the Catholic faith 
should be judged by the lives of her faithful members, by those who abide by the church's laws, by those who uphold her ideals, and not those who reject them. And, you know, this just seems, that's just logic 101. In fact, um, I would suggest to you that if we did not have bad Catholics, then we'd have something to worry about. Because if you recall, our good Lord spoke of his kingdom in terms of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. That an enemy had sown weeds among the wheat in a farmer's field. And likewise, that, that, that good and bad people live side by side in the church and will. They will remain until the harvest. The final judgment, when the wheat shall be gathered into barns and the weeds will be set aside to be burned. Now, clearly, there's a vast difference between being merely a Catholic and living a Catholic life. Baptism makes you a member of the church, but it doesn't determine if you're going to be a good or a bad one. You know, it's the way a Catholic lives. It's the way you cooperate with God's grace of baptism and the other sacraments that make you good, bad, or indifferent as a Catholic. You know, we become members of, of a family by our natural birth, but that doesn't make us the kind of children our parents were hoping for. <laughs> That's determined by our free will. In the same way, our spiritual rebirth in baptism doesn't force us, doesn't automatically make us the kind of children of God that, that God the Father and, and churches our mother would like us to become. Now, the modern world often hurls the challenge. Your church had its chance and lost it. But you know what I say? I say the church took its chance. And you and the whole world are the better for it. And if anyone has, tells you that the Catholic Church has only had a negligible in, influence on Western civilization, know that they are speaking 100% unfiltered nonsense. See, the problem is that so many people today, Catholics included, have no idea that the, you know, what the faith accomplished, and they have no idea what the world was like when, when Christ appeared in it. They don't realize the, the work of regeneration and renewal that the church undertook and, and continues to do in, in so many ways uh, in our world today. All of which is it's a work of restoration, the restoration of the relationship with God that was lost in the Garden of Eden. So when we look at history and when we look at the church today, do we say to ourselves, oh, the church is a failure? Does the church need to, to get with the times? Do we need to change things around, be more like the world? You know, I would suggest to you that those who so consistently bring up that charge, and I'm sorry to say that that includes so-called progressive Catholics, even those in the church's hierarchy, <laughs> the kind of Catholics that think we really need a synod on synodality, uh, I, I believe that such people are actually demonstrating, um, even advertising the fact that the traditional Catholic faith is an unqualified and immortal success, or they wouldn't pay so much attention to it. The Republic of Venice was a, a, a jewel of Western civilization, but the papacy was ancient when the Republic of Venice was born. And the Republic of Venice is gone, but the church, the church lives on. If there wasn't, you know, uh, the reason they pay so much attention, the reason that they, that people are always going after the Catholic church is that it's the one thing that stands between us and, 
uh, you know, chaos, the new world order, all of whatever you want to call it. And, and if the traditional faith wasn't an unqualified and immortal success, there wouldn't be such a great need to oppose it. There wouldn't be a need for an organized effort amongst progressives in the church itself to marginalize the traditional movement. You know, I read an article not that long ago after Traditionis Custodis come out that said, well, the, the, the traditional church, it doesn't really have those numbers. It's not really growing. It's really insignificant. You know? Uh, and if that's true, like I say, why why try and marginalize us if we're already on the margins, as, as someone I, I know once said. And I, I tell you that that's why it's growing. Why, you know, people are confused. Why why are young people going to the traditional mass? Why why are they seeking the traditional faith? We've finally unburdened ourselves of centuries of Catholicism. Why do they why do they want to return to that? Well, it's, it's really simple. It's because, as as Chesterton said, they don't want a church that will move with the world. They want a church that will move the world. And that's no nonsense. And it reminds me of, of what Cardinal George said, because, you know, there, there's so much going on, so much bad news. And, you know, and there has been nothing but bad news from the secular side ever since I became a Catholic, uh, from what I can remember. But we have to remember the uh, the words of Cardinal George, uh, God rest his soul, who said very famously, he was talking to a group of priests, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically said that that he was going to die in his bed and that his successor would die in prison, that his successor would die in the street, but that his successor would pick up the broken shards uh, of our ruined civilization and put it back together the way the church has done so many times in the past. And with that thought, I leave you now. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. Matthew Arnold here for No Nonsense Catholic and the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Hey, I um, want to encourage you, if you uh, have the opportunity to, to take a moment, please say a prayer for us. And if God has blessed you so abundantly and you really enjoy what you hear here, um, go ahead to virginmostpowerful.org, our website. And there's a little button that says Donate. You can click on that, make an instant donation, become a monthly donor. We need that. That's what really keeps the lights bill paid. You know, that's what keeps us going. Um, as we often say, we cannot do it without you, and that is the truth. We are 100% listener-supported. And so we ask for your support, both financially and especially spiritually. You pray for us, and we will pray for you, as we do at the Sacred Heart Chapel every single day. All right, till next time, thanks for listening. Virtual Most Powerful Radio.